Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to take a trip into adolescent medicine and cover contraception. Yes, I know that between patient population and personal beliefs, not every pediatrician is going to be talking about and prescribing contraception in practice, but we all need to know about it to get through our exams. The most recent policy statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all pediatricians have a basic working knowledge of contraception, and that's what we're going to aim for here today. As a disclaimer, this episode is going to acknowledge the existence of sex and the fact that it's something that adolescents do. There's nothing graphic, but you've been warned. Before we get into specific methods, let's cover some background. Going back to the AAP policy statement, a big part of why they recommend every pediatrician be familiar with contraception is that the long-term relationships that primary care doctors develop are super important in navigating these kinds of potentially sensitive issues. Being able to have conversations about sexual health, even things like menstrual symptoms and other not-sexual activity-related issues, means you can address problems early on, and you'll be thankful for the trust you built up over the years if the patient and parent aren't on the same page about something. On that topic, there is some variability from state to state as far as what kind of health information is confidential from parents. And HIPAA says that if there's no applicable state law, healthcare professionals can exercise their judgment to permit or deny parents access to health records. Because of that, the AAP recommends that every practice have a policy that explicitly outlines what kind of information is confidential and what can be shared with parents. In terms of pharmacology, hormonal contraception uses estrogen, progestin, or both to suppress ovulation, thicken the cervical mucus, and decrease motility in the fallopian tubes all of which makes it a whole lot harder for sperm and egg to meet up. You'll notice that none of those mechanisms involve stopping a fetus from developing, because it's just not something contraceptive pills can do. From a physiological standpoint, taking estrogen or progestin more or less replicates what happens to the uterus and menstrual cycle during pregnancy, so it's not like it creates a hostile environment for human development. If someone does get pregnant while she's taking contraceptive pills, it's recommended that she stop taking the medication as soon as she finds out, but there's really no evidence of any harm to the mother or the baby if there's overlap. That's not based on any large, randomized controlled trials, of course. There's no remotely ethical way to set up that kind of study. But with OCPs being around for almost 60 years, there's plenty of observational data. Mentioning contraceptive failure seems like a good time for me to admit that the only 100% guaranteed way to prevent pregnancy is abstinence. Then again, the CDC says that a little over 40% of girls between 15 and 19 years old report having sex, so abstinence might not be the method you want to rely on. It's definitely a good idea to talk to your patients about maturity, consent, safe relationships, and everything else that goes into being sexually active, but discussing contraception can be just as important as talking about seatbelts and helmets. If you're going to do something, you'd better be doing it safely. Contraceptives aren't perfect, but they definitely work, and my own city is a great example. In 2008 in Milwaukee, the birth rate among girls between 15 and 17 years old was 62.9 per 1,000. That's more than one in every 20. That same year, they launched a teen pregnancy prevention program. There was a huge media and public education campaign, including evidence-based sex ed classes in public schools and involvement of community partners like the United Way. None of it directly promoted contraception. For example, one of the programs encouraged girls to abstain from sex until they could support a child, but also taught them about protecting themselves when they did start having sex. 
Still, the increased awareness about pregnancy and ways to prevent it led to an increase in the number of teens using contraception. Altogether, the combination of community support, education, and contraceptive use cut the teen birth rate in Milwaukee by 59% in just four years, and it's kept going down ever since. The last thing to mention before we get into the different types of contraception out there is non-contraceptive use. The same changes in the menstrual cycle that inhibit ovulation also provide major benefits to women and girls whose periods are irregular or heavy by controlling how much hormone exposure there is and when it happens. That regulation can also improve dysmenorrhea, endometriosis, and some of the other unpleasant symptoms that come with periods. Finally, taking estrogen and progestin pills helps suppress androgen production, which makes them handy for treating polycystic ovarian syndrome and some forms of acne. Now that we've covered the basics, we can get into the different methods that are available. We'll hit the most common methods, and for each of them we'll touch on how they work, how effective they are, and some of the pros, cons, and contraindications. When we talk about efficacy, keep in mind with that no contraceptive use at all, around 85% of sexually active women will get pregnant within a year. For the different efficacy rates, perfect use is exactly what it sounds like, while typical use takes user error into account. For example, condoms are 98% effective for pregnancy prevention with perfect use, but only 82% with typical use. Since we spent most of the introduction with hormonal contraception, we'll start there with oral contraceptive pills. OCPs are the most popular method out there and more than 99% effective with perfect use and 91% effective with typical use. Most pills contain both estrogen and progestin, but there are progestin-only mini-pills out there as well. There's no need for any kind of pelvic exam before prescribing, and they can be started at any point in the menstrual cycle. For patients who decide that they're ready to have a baby, most women are back to normal fertility within a month or two of coming off the pill. The most common side effects are bloating, breast tenderness, and nausea, but those typically improve after the first couple of months. OCPs are safe for most patients, but shouldn't be prescribed to women with severe, uncontrolled hypertension, liver dysfunction, complicated valvular heart disease, diabetes with complications, migraines that come with aura or focal neurologic symptoms, or any woman with a history of blood clots or thrombophilia. The most likely contraindication to come up on your next exam is the blood clots and migraines, which applies for OCPs and any other contraceptive that delivers systemic doses of estrogen. High levels of estrogen can increase the risk of developing blood clots, which isn't a major problem in the general population since the increase rate is still only 3 to 4 clots per 10,000 woman years. But when you put that higher risk on top of somebody who's already predisposed to clots, it shifts the risks and benefits more toward not prescribing. If you do have a question on your exam about contraception for a patient with a history of blood clots, look for the option with no estrogen. Next on the list of hormonal methods is depomidroxyprogesterone, better known as the depo shot. It's a long-acting, progesterone-based injection that's more than 99% effective with perfect use and 94% effective with typical use. The injections are scheduled every 12 to 15 weeks, which is nice for keeping regular follow-up with patients, but can be tricky for anyone with transportation problems. Again, there's no pelvic exam needed before starting treatment, and the first shot can be given on the same day the patient decides she wants it, as long as she isn't already pregnant. The shot can take a little time to have its full effect, so it's recommended that patients use a backup method like condoms or avoid sex for at least a week after their first injection. 
Common side effects are some menstrual irregularities and spotting, breast discomfort, and weight gain, all of which usually improve with time. Return to fertility after coming off depo can be a little slower than with other methods, so patients who could be looking to start a family soon might want to think about using something different. The contraindications are similar to OCPs, liver disease, valve disease, and severe hypertension, with the exception of blood clots because depo doesn't contain any estrogen. The last major method of hormonal contraception is the implantable devices, Implanon and Nexplanon. These are little rods, about an inch long, that get placed in the arm and release a progestin metabolite, so it's another good option for patients with contraindications to estrogen. The implants stay in place for up to three years and are more than 99.95% effective, with no caveats for typical use since there's nothing the patient has to do once it's been placed. Speaking of placement, that can be done right in the office in less than 15 minutes by anyone who's been trained. Contraceptive implants are also on the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology's list of options for immediate postpartum contraception. There's no impact on breastfeeding or infant health, and they can be placed before the mother even leaves the hospital. The main side effect of the implants is some irregular bleeding and spotting, and they're contraindicated for women with progestin-sensitive cancers and liver disease. There is also some data that women who are more than 130% of ideal body weight for height or who are on certain medications that increase progestin metabolism might have decreased efficacy, so make sure you're choosing the right option for your patient before you place the implant. The last contraceptive method we'll cover today is IUDs, intrauterine devices. IUDs have become more and more popular recently because they're more than 99% effective with no chance for user error and provide safe, long-term contraception with a quick return to fertility for the vast majority of women. The IUD itself causes a foreign body reaction in the uterus, which makes an environment that the sperm and egg can't survive long enough to get together. On top of that, copper IUDs inhibit sperm migration, and the Mirena and Skyla IUDs release a local dose of levonorgestrel, a progesterone, to give some of the benefits of progesterone therapy without the systemic effects. Skyla can be left in for up to 3 years, Mirena for 5 years, and a copper IUD for as long as 10 years, but those are just the maximum times. IUDs can be removed whenever a patient is ready for it to come out. We used to think that IUDs could have some permanent effect on fertility, but studies have shown that that isn't the case, so now they're approved for anyone, even mothers who have just given birth. The only real contraindications are current pregnancy, pelvic inflammatory disease, sexually transmitted infection, abnormal vaginal bleeding, or genital urinary malignancy. Copper IUDs can sometimes cause increased bleeding, spotting, or menstrual pain, but the levonorgestrel in Mirena and Skyla can actually help decrease flow and dysmenorrhea symptoms. There are a lot of positives for IUDs, which is why they're endorsed by ACOG as the first-line contraception for any woman. That's all for our episode on contraception. A working knowledge of contraceptive methods is important for every pediatrician, even if it's just enough to answer a few basic questions before pointing your patient towards someone who knows more than you do. More than anything, get to know your patient so you can help her decide which method is right for her and talk through the decision they're making. They're all very effective as long as you use them correctly, and trying to limit that user error is why there's been a shift toward long-acting reversible methods like IUDs and implants in the last several years. Remember that hormonal contraceptives like OCPs, depo shots, and implants work primarily by suppressing ovulation and thickening of the cervical mucus, and they can also be used to treat dysmenorrhea, endometriosis, and heavy menses. 
Estrogen-containing contraceptives are contraindicated for anyone with a history of blood clots or migraines with neurologic symptoms, so make sure to get a good history before you prescribe anything. IUDs work anywhere from 3 to 10 years depending on which one you choose, are safe for just about all women, and can come out at any time with a quick return to fertility when patients are ready for kids of their own. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. We're going to be taking a break for a while to get our next round of episodes ready and work on a few side projects to supplement the podcast, so keep an eye out for announcements. If you have any suggestions or other feedback, you can find us on Twitter at PEDSOUP, P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, or email PEDSOUP at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back in a while with more PEDSOUP.